It's a program of Jewish information, inspiration, motivation, and transformation. Here on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. Welcome again to another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. I am Gabrielle, your host for a fast-moving half hour of Jewish food for thought, word, and deed. And in today's lineup, psychologist Dr. Lisa Aiken brings us the second installment of her presentation on positive communication. Then Rabbi Jonathan Rietti explores the science of anger. That'll be interesting. And Rabbi David Aaron offers compelling thoughts on how to have a truly joyous life. I'll have some comments of my own in the final segment, so let's get underway with this edition of the Audio Magazine coming to you from the heart of the world, Jerusalem. You're tuned to The Gabrielle Sanders Show, broadcasting on WNEW 102.7 FM HD3 New York and around the world on TalklineNetwork.com. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail.com. Last week, we began a four-part exploration with Dr. Lisa Aiken on how to improve our interpersonal communication skills. And here she is with part two, discussing when being right is being wrong. Judaism is a religion that is very pragmatic. It gives us many tools to get along with people including teaching us how we can best communicate. One of the problems that people sometimes get into when they have a disagreement is that one person tries to prove themselves right while proving the other person wrong. This almost invariably backfires because one person ends up feeling humiliated or even more determined to stand their ground. Proving that we are right may win us a few battles, but we almost always lose the war. Being right and lonely is not much of a victory. This is why being objectively right is not that important in personal relationships. This means that we often have to choose between two conflicting goals, saying the truth as we see it, or resolving a problem. Ironically, doing the former often precludes doing the latter. Can you relate to the following situation? Something upsetting happens to you, and you tell a friend about it expecting to get sympathy. Instead, your friend tells you that you shouldn't be feeling that way, or explains what you did wrong. As long as they try to get you to see the truth, you feel even more wedded to your point of view. Your friend's response may be truthful, but it is useless at best and harmful at worst. Until we can empathize with someone who is emotionally upset, they won't hear another point of view. Pointing out how wrong people are rarely convinces them of anything except that we don't understand them. We have to first take away their hurt by empathizing with them before they will listen to reason. We can't do this by insisting to someone else that they are wrong and we are right. One of the reasons that we get into a lot of trouble in our personal relationships is because of our anger. In our secular society, we are often urged to get in touch with our anger and to share it. Barraging anyone with anger, though, may make us feel good at the moment, but it destroys our relationships. Instead, we should ask ourselves why we feel angry and try to put what happened in perspective and then communicate constructively about it. Our feelings are not facts. Our feelings depend upon how we interpret events, rather than being automatic reactions that everyone has under the circumstances. For example, depressed people don't have objectively worse lives than people who aren't depressed. They just view their problems as more distressing. What various events mean to us is more important than what actually happens. Many people don't realize that when we get angry, More often than not, it's because our expectations of how the world should work were upset. We expected things to go a certain way, and that's not what happened. In order for us not to feel angry, that means taking responsibility 
for our contribution and perspectives about a problem. For example, let's say you go to the post office and you expect to go in and out without having to wait in line. When you get there, especially at the end of December, you find a line that goes from the teller all the way out the door. You expected to spend five minutes getting your postage stamps. Instead, you have to wait for 45 minutes. You feel furious because part of you is saying, I shouldn't have to wait in this line. This isn't the way life should be. Many times people get angry with those they're in relationships with for the same reason. A wife expects her husband to act a certain way, and when he doesn't, she feels furious. A mother expects her child to act a certain way, and when he doesn't, she blows her top. By changing our expectations to reflect what reality is more like, instead of the way we wished it would be, we can stop feeling angry in many parts of our lives. We also need to know when we misinterpret what someone actually did or what they meant, and we can only do this by asking the other person to clarify what it was before we draw conclusions about it. For example, let's say a mother has a child who spills milk all over the table. The mother may get angry because she assumes that the child was simply being negligent or careless. When in fact she asked the child what he was doing, she may find out that the child tried very hard to pour milk for his little sister. And he was actually trying to help the mother instead of being negligent. When we understand what someone else's intentions were, it may modify our reactions considerably. If we don't check things out before we react, we are likely to distort what happened by filtering through our emotional lenses, which may not be at all correct. The Torah tells us that we have to judge favorably. That means that in an ambiguous situation, we must assume that our friend, or our child, or our spouse had good intentions. Even when the effects weren't good, we aren't allowed to assume the worst about someone when it is possible to give him or her the benefit of the doubt. The best way to dispel our doubts is to hear the other person's side of the story before we come to our emotional conclusions. A woman I know was furious that she had planned a romantic dinner with her husband, who still wasn't home by eight o'clock at night. She fueled her anger by remembering dozens of incidents when he came home late at eight thirty. He called to tell her that he had been in a car accident. Imagine how quickly her reaction changed from being one of anger to being one of concern. The next time something happens that makes you angry, reserve judgment about it until you have had a chance to discuss it with the other person who was involved. Couples have many fights because of misinterpretations. If they would only take the time to clarify what happened, they could avoid many arguments and bad feelings. That was Dr. Lisa Aiken on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. She's the author of several books you might be interested in, among them "To Be a Jewish Woman," "Beyond Beshert," "The Guide to the Romantically Perplexed," and "Why Me, God: A Jewish Guide for Coping with Suffering." They're all available on Amazon. Now let's segue to a serious subject that we all confront, especially in today's polarized society. Here's Rabbi Jonathan Rieti bringing us wise words on the science of anger. Thank you, Gabriel. The presentation you've asked me to speak about is the science. Of anger, I think a number of questions I would like to address is number one: What is anger? Is it an emotion triggered by disagreeable people and circumstances? Is anger really an emotion, or is it actually a camouflage, a disguise to hide a different message? And does anger ever really work? If it really does work, then what is the goal of my anger? And if it doesn't work, then what am I using anger for? And then another question I want to address is: If anger doesn't work, and we're going to work this through together, then why would a mature adult use anger to communicate a difference? So 
I want to share with you the following. The predicate of this presentation is essentially, number one, anger is a science. It can be observed. You can place it, so to speak, under the scrutiny of a microscope. And there, the naked anger reveals its true ingredients. Ingredients that admit to the real function of anger. Predicate number two, it's not only a science, but it's also a choice. My anger is essentially a choice I am making. So let's begin with a clarity of anger's results. Now, I'm going to ask you, the audience, what is the most negative consequence of my anger against you? Who gets hurt by my anger? Anyone who's on the receiving side. But does anyone else get hurt? Yeah, I hurt myself. What happens to the tension between us? Is it increased? Decreased? No, we feel much more tension. Is anger ever a solution? I think one could easily argue that it never really solves the problem, which will lead us to the other question which we want to address is, well, if anger never really resolves the problem I'm angry about, then why am I using anger in my communication of a difference? Let me ask you, what level of shame do we experience when we demonstrate anger towards a spouse, a loved one, our own child, or even against ourselves or a parent? What happens to the shame, the guilt, the feeling of regret? Do I feel proud and prideful that I was able to get this off my chest? Or I feel actually hurt. I feel shamed. And you have more respect for me or less respect for me, seeing that I get out of control. You know, does anger lead to increased clarity? Or does anger often distort reality and brings up a history of faults unrelated to the present problem? It's Just, you know, you're just like your mother. No, no, sorry, not you personally. And I start blaming and comparing you and hurting you with words and high decibels. And then the question really begs, does anger bring clarity or does it distort reality? And what does it do to the love relationship? Does it increase the love? Do I make you more endeared to me? Or does my anger actually erode whatever love there might have been? And let me ask a different question. What about my relationship with God? How does anger play there? I don't like the way, God, you are running the world or my world. So in a certain sense, my anger is not just about me. It's against my own creator. And often we'll argue anger is really about control and anger feeds into manipulation and getting people to cooperate out of fear and in contrast to self-motivation. So let's put anger under the microscope and discover what is it really about. You know, it's interesting that Maimonides, 800 years ago, when he wrote his legal code, the Mishnah Torah, he claims there in the laws of thinking, Hilchus Deus, in the laws of thinking, chapter 2, he makes the following claim, that of all the different midot, character traits, Every single one has a correct measure for each situation. So that anger, perhaps we're going to see, actually has no midder, no measure. Kindness. Well, could I destroy my child in the name of kindness? Of course I could. I could give and give and give to this child to the point that I nurture dependence, greed, egoism on his part. Instead of the real function of my helping my child is to develop and nurture independence. So every single trait, kindness, giving, love, really has a correct measure. Claims Maimonides, there are two exceptions. They have no application, no measure, because they never work. Number one, arrogance. Number two, 
anger. Anger is exceptionally negative, harmful. So if it's really true that the downside of anger is that I make you feel unsafe to share with me, to be honest with me, because you're scared that I might blow up into a rage and I use my angry nades against you. Is it possible that I could erode the love? Is it what about happens to my blood pressure? There's no upside for anger, only downside. Well, then the question now begs, if that's really true, why do I, as an adult, possibly with a decent education, intelligent, discerning mind, why would I use anger to communicate a difference in the relationship or something I'm upset about in the circumstances? And the sad answer is number one, two, and three. Number one, the function of my anger is it actually is a camouflage for me to use in order to avoid intimacy. Anger provides for me a way to avoid looking at myself. Because let's figure out this way. When I'm blaming you and I'm accusing you and I'm denying it's my fault, giving excuses why it's your fault, guess who has to change? Guess where the arrow is pointing? Not at me, outside of me. It's the market. It's the weather. It's the mother. In-law, I'm just swallowing, sorry. It's the father-in-law, it's the brother, the sister. Whoever it is that I'm angry at, I am pointing fingers of blame and it's not my fault. So I don't have to change, you have to change. So number one, function of anger is in order to avoid me looking at myself. Number two, my anger plays the function of me avoiding intimacy with you. The very person I claim to be angry with and I'm trying to communicate the difference that really bothers me what I'm actually doing when I use anger is making you feel less safe to share your real self with me so in the name of wanting to communicate to you I'm actually creating walls of intimacy that walls of bricks between us so that intimacy is not possible and number three perhaps most frightening of all is my anger is a way for me to avoid intimacy with my creator. Because when the world is not the way I want it to be, and I'm angry, I'm really complaining against God. But I don't want to admit that I'm a religious Jew. I give tzedakah, I give charity, I put on tefillin, I keep kosher, I keep the Sabbath. So I don't want to say that I'm really angry with God, but in reality, anger plays the function of me avoiding intimacy with myself, others, and my creator. So then what am I supposed to do? Surprisingly, We don't have any options. Our sages tell us that this has no benefit. There is no upside to anger. The only option I have is number one, control it, or number two, communicate the difference without anger. The mitzvah of toichacha, which unfortunately is sometimes mistranslated as reprimand, really means to clarify. The only option I have is to conquer my anger or to clarify with you, my dear spouse, my child, and ask you, why it is you're behaving or saying this in order to give you a chance to either apologize, explain, uh, perhaps it's a miscommunication. I only have two options, conquer my anger or clarify without anger. It's interesting, Maimonides actually seems the o- claims the only anger that ever works is kasa panim, anger on the face, but not kasa lev, not anger in the heart. I will close on the following. The one animal that the Jewish people are asked to emulate when it comes to Gavura, conquering oneself. Eizehu Gibor, who is the powerful person? It's the one who conquers himself. And the verse that's brought in chapter 4, paragraph 1 of Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, is Toiv Erechapai Migibor. Greatest someone controls his anger. 
is patient than someone who's strong. Umoshel Baruch is someone who controls his breath. He doesn't even get angry internally. That's greater milayketir than surrounding an entire city with one's forces, a siege. Says our sages, emulate the lion. Havigibur Ka'ari, be like a lion. Why the lion? Says Rabbi Slifkin, a very interesting insight, borrowing from the Maharal, that of all the wildcat family, the panther, the cougar, the jaguar, the tiger, of all the wildcats, each one of them you will see live alone. The only one that stays with family is the lion. Why? Because the minute there's a difference between us, the panther breaks off, splits. The cougar takes on his own isolated life. The tiger is alone. The only one who conquers his own self is the lion. We are being commissioned to be in control of the one trait that is most destructive and negative and that has no upside. And in the merit of us taking this upon ourselves as a lifelong mission, a lifelong career, maybe all be merit the coming of the Messiah with our own conquering of our own anger. This is Jonathan Rietti wishing you health, wealth, wisdom, and happiness. Thank you so much. This is Rabbi Pesach Krohn, and you're listening to my dear friend and yours, Gavriel. I've learned so much through the years from the refreshing perspectives of Rabbi David Aaron. Today, he brings us a concept for having a truly joyous life. Rabbi Aaron, over to you. If you're looking to take a spiritual journey, you're going to have to unpack your Jewish baggage from a very long guilt trip. That's the process that I had to go through over a significant number of years. When I was a child... I definitely did not have a very loving relationship with God, and I surely didn't think that God loved me. I remember one day I was playing with my hamster that my parents gifted me for my birthday. I was maybe about seven, eight years old, and being the little sadistical kid that I was, and boy was I, I put this little hamster through hell. I created all kinds of obstacles to see how he would fare, how he would weather those challenges, and then one day it hit me. Hmm... I always wondered why God created me. I always wondered why this world is so filled with obstacles and problems and challenges. I began to think, hmm, maybe just like because I was lonely and bored, my parents bought me a pet to keep me entertained. Maybe that's why God created me. Maybe just like I have a hamster, God needed a pet and he got himself a humster. And maybe I'm God's pet. Maybe all this stuff that we're all going through is just part of God's cheap thrills to keep himself entertained. Hardly a positive attitude towards God. I remember I once read a cute little comic strip of Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes, the toy tiger, turns to Calvin and says, Calvin, do you believe in God? Calvin's got this philosophical look on his face with his hands behind his head, and he's thinking, he goes, well, somebody's out to get me. And I was that little Calvin, and after 25 years of being a Jewish educator, I have met so many Calvins, so many Jewish Calvins that believe that God is out to get them. 
that believe that God is not loving, God is not caring, God is not there for me, God is not on my team, but that God is some angry, vague deity from whom there is no escape and towards whom one must necessarily submit themselves to. I recall as a teenager seeing a underground film called Bambi Meets Godzilla. Not a long film. Basically, it starts off with Bambi grazing in the background. You hear this beautiful, serene music. And you see the foot of Godzilla stomp on Bambi. The whole show was about three minutes, and then there were 20 minutes of credits. Bambi's makeup, Bambi's wardrobe, Godzilla's toenails, and I wondered to myself, isn't that a strange name for a monster, Godzilla? But I want you to understand, the sad thing is that I have met so many people that think if the Jewish people did experience revelation at Sinai, it was with Godzilla. I am Godzilla who took you out of Egypt. I have taken you out of 210 years of slavery under the oppression of a human slave driver, so you shall now be my slave for eternity. How many Jews I meet that have such oppressive and such distorted and such painful misunderstandings about the real meaning of their heritage. In my new book, Living a Jewish Life, I share the genuine understanding how, in fact, God is always on our side. In Jewish tradition, we have a power referred to as the Sitra Acher. The Sitra Acher is also described as the Yetzer Hara, the inner adversary that beats us up inside, that negative little voice inside us that distorts our way of thinking. But why would that little Yetzer Hara, that inner adversary be referred to also as the sitra achir, the other side. And I would suggest because the main point of this yetzahara, this evil urge, is that God's not on your side. You're on another side and God's on some other side and he's not on your side. Jewish tradition teaches us the good news from the Jews is that God is always and only on your side. The word that we use to describe divinity is the yud, the hey, the vav, the hey, which when we see that word, we actually do not pronounce it, but we say a completely different word, Adonai, which means master. Who is Adonai really in our lives? There is an oral tradition whereby Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, according to my actions, I am called. What would that mean? That would mean that every word that we see in the Torah, that is a word for divinity, is actually in some way associated to a verb, to an action. What could the name Yudke Vavke be related to in terms of an action? It's connected to the word Lihiot, which means to be. In other words, if I see someone singing, I'd call them a singer. Someone dancing, I'd call them a dancer. Someone speaking, I'd call them a speaker. Well, what would I refer to if I saw someone or experienced someone being? I guess we'd call them the be-er. 
What does it mean to be or not to be? That's my question. The question is, to be is to reveal. If I'm funny and I'm being funny, then I'm revealing my funniness. If I'm intelligent and I'm being intelligent, then I'm revealing my intelligence. When we talk about God, we're referring to the source of all being. And all of being is a manifestation and expression of the great be-er. In other words, that word, which is referred to as the tetragrammaton, that four-letter word, the yud, the hey, the vav, the hey that we find in the Torah would best be translated as the be-er, the source of being. You and I are beings. There are mineral beings, animal beings, vegetable beings, human beings. But who is the source of all being that everything is an expression of? That's the be-er. So someone suggested that I take a look and see if that word actually exists. And I looked in the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary, and there it was, be-er. Unbelievable. And a intoxicating drink. But just underneath that is actually B-E-R, and I suggest you look this up, B-E-E-R, capital B-E-E-R, translated as the self-existent, the great I am. Isn't that God? The self-existent, the great I am? I'm not the great I am. According to Kabbalah, we are all a ray of God. If God were the sun, each and every one of us would be a ray of of his incredible light. When you experience yourself as a ray of God, connected to the source forever and always, and when you find a lifestyle that testifies to that truth, how could you be anything but living a joyous life? Thank you, Rabbi Aaron. Such useful insights for all of us. Now I have an academically related question. Are you a Jewish college student? Do you know a Jewish college student? Are you planning to be a Jewish college student? So if so, I have an action item for you. During their four years of undergraduate study, many college students take a semester of study abroad, and lots of universities around the world have programs set up to accommodate them. Here's my challenge to the student that you are, or the student you know, or the student you might become. If study abroad is on your agenda, make Israel your first choice. There was a Brandeis study that showed that if a Jewish student spends four or more months in Israel, he or she will have a lifelong shift in the depth of Jewish identity that they carry with them. Israel needs more students from the diaspora to come learn, gain skills in Jewish leadership, and become effective Jewish advocates. Thrive Study Abroad, which is an organization I know very well, has been providing guidance and programming for semesters abroad at the Hebrew U for 10 years and for the last five years at Tel Aviv University. What's remarkable is how many students have chosen to make Aliyah after experiencing the Thrive Study Abroad programs. And today, given the anti-Jewish sentiment on U.S. campuses, we find Thrive alumni taking the lead in countering the anti-Semitism. So here's a simple action item that you can take if you're a college student or planning to be one. Take a pledge that if you study abroad, Israel will be your number one choice. Go to ipledgeforisrael.org and join the groundswell of students across North America that are declaring their intention to prioritize a semester abroad in Israel. It takes a few seconds to take the pledge, and when you do, five shekels will be contributed to an Israeli organization that's providing needed relief and aid during the current crisis. And that's it for this edition of the Gabriel Sanders Show. Thanks again to Dr. Lisa Aiken, Rabbis Jonathan Rietti, and David Aaron for their soul food today. Thanks to Erin Michelle for her voiceover talent and Audionautics for our intro-outro music. Thanks also to executive producer Zeb Brenner of the Talkline Network for bringing the Gabriel Sanders Show to you. From Jerusalem, this is Gabriel wishing you cold tooth. This program showcases people, organizations, and opportunities for making a difference. Tune in next week for another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. You can reach Gabrielle at gabrielleradio at gmail.com. That's G-A-V-R-I-E-L radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.